Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. After a week in which we talked about a 2020 release, we're back to talking about old movies here as the theaters are still shut down. And I'm happy to be joined by my friend Josh Brown to talk about Dog Day Afternoon. Josh, thanks for being here to talk about your boy, Sidney Lumet. Hell yeah. I love my boy, Sydney, And also, what a timely film about people being locked up, not being able to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even made that connection. But yeah, uh, I, I'm a big I'm a big Sydney and Met fan. At least I consider myself one. So it was like kind of an embarrassing one that I just hadn't personally watched because Dog Day Afternoon is considered one of his uh, more iconic movies. It's it's a 1975 film, right? 75? Yeah. yeah it's crazy. Is it Network 76? Yeah. God, no, that's, that's like, insane. No, but let me tell you something. 1975 Best Picture Race. Like, sit back. So you have Dog Day Afternoon versus Jaws versus One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which won, versus Nashville and versus Barry Lyndon. That was the Best Picture lineup. I mean, it's kind of, I think people, a lot of people talk about like 76 as being like a, like an iconic one, right? Because isn't that the, isn't that the year that it was like Rocky and Network and like, um yeah. a few other things yeah that one's rocky network taxi driver all the presidents men yeah but then you do have like a forgotten one the uh, forgotten one is bound for glory uh, at least right. with the, like 75 like all of them iconic films and you probably like people you could find someone who could make a case as to why each one should have won so i've actually never seen nashville or barry linden and barry and it's funny i was just talking to josh before we started recording about how you know i'm taking advantage of this quarantine one to like watch movies that are just like a hole in a director's filmography kind of like uh dog day was for me for sydney lumet and it's movies that are just long ass movies that you never thought you had the time to watch and now you don't really have an excuse not to watch them like you know i've watched uh amadeus i've watched dances with wolves like just like uh, the, the director's cut of Margaret. Like I'm taking this opportunity to watch like like over three hour movies. So I'm, I'm like, and I just watched Doctor Strange Love the other day. So like next on my list, like okay, well if I want to do a long ass Stanley Kubrick one, I got to finally watch Barry Lyndon. So I'm still I'm soon gonna like work my way up and like kind of knock out all these like iconic Oscar years. It's like uh, kind of right there on my list. But yeah, I, I, I didn't I, I I'd forgotten that like um, uh, Dog Day was up against like such a formidable competition at. The Oscars that year and uh kind of a shame that like I mean uh Sidney Lumet like I mean did, did well wait did he did end up did he direct the best picture winner at some point no he uh, never, well I knew I knew he never won for director I couldn't remember yeah. if one of his p- films that he directed won best picture though man yeah no it's insane because his directorial debut is 12 angry men yeah uh yeah I mean just uh I feel like it, I feel like that this doesn't get talked enough, like with directors never winning. I mean, like Kubrick gets talked a lot as never, I feel like Kubrick gets talked about more as like never having won best director than Sidney Lumet does. Um, so and, yeah. he, and to be fair to Kubrick, he did win a competitive Oscar. He did win for the visual effects on 2001: A Space Odyssey. Oh, he was was he actually the nominee? Yeah. Oh, he, that's cool. And, and the visual effects supervisors on that film kind of disagreed with that um like he had a role but like like a little bit more overstated than like uh than they would have liked but yeah that's the one that uh he i believe won 
Well, kind of insane uh, that like Sidney Lumet never got anything because I mean he's obviously uh, one of our iconic guys. And uh, Dog Day Afternoon uh, tells the story of a, a a true story of a 1972 uh, bank robbery attempt that was perpetrated by a uh, first time crook named Sonny Wartzik and uh, his friend Sal Naturel, and they were accompanied by a friend Stevie who bails like five minutes into the robbery, just didn't have the stomach <laughs> for it. Not um, a real one. <laughs> nope, <laughs> not in the Homeboy Hall of Fame. Uh, and uh, they're trying to rob First Brooklyn Savings Bank. You don't you don't fully know a lot about these guys till later in the movie. But they it seems like they kind of have it well planned out. But then something goes wrong when it turns out the vault only has eleven hundred dollars in cash, and they got to figure out how they are going to get out of this pickle. And they, obviously, hostage negotiators get taken in. They got to deal with all the hostages that they have contained, and different people from Sonny's personal life get kind of get called into the story and uh it becomes like a whole entire referendum on this guy and uh, a deconstruction of everything that makes him the guy that he's trying to portray himself as as the beginning of the movie uh josh you're more you're much more well versed even in sydney umet filmography than i am so we just talked about like how stacked the year was that dog day fell in as far as like an oscar year but uh when you first when, when i first said hey do you want to do a, a podcast on dog day afternoon what did you think like where does this rank for you within his movies what do you really like about it that or not like about it that kind of like puts it within wherever you would rank it in his filmography well i actually i really this is a crazy thing um my relationship with Sidney Lumet is this. Oh, I, we should say before you start, like Al Pacino, that's a big deal because we're going to have to talk about him. He plays Sonny and John Cazell who plays uh, – talk about people with good Oscars batting averages. John Cazell plays uh, Sal. So those are the two main yeah. guys. So that obviously informs probably whatever you're going to say. So I needed to like kind of spit that out. But yeah, yeah. Talk, about, talk about this movie. Yeah, and John Cazell, for, for those who don't know, like has the insane Oscar stat of every movie he – because he had his very short life, but every movie he was in was nominated for Best Picture. That's so correct. Two Godfathers, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Yep. Um, but like, yeah, my, my thing with, uh, with Dog Day Afternoon is I really like this movie. It was probably the first Sidney Lumet movie I probably saw like when I – like I – bought it on a whim like when i was like seven or eight uh, like <laughs> that is such a, that is such a josh brown thing to say <laughs> yeah like it, it was one of the first so it, this one was the first one i saw and i was really taken with it um but the, the crazy thing is i think it's a really really good movie it'd probably be my second pick of the five films nominated for best picture in 1975 um and i would have been totally happy if it won but it's probably my number seven Sidney Lumet film and it's wow. not necessarily um because uh I dislike it or anything I like I think it's a, a near perfect movie it's just Sidney Lumet's like I think his filmography it just has so many gems that like it's like when you're starting when your first film is 12 Angry Men it's almost it could only be downhill from there but it isn't like, you know, you, you're also talking about network. You're also talking about another Pacino crime movie that he does, does in the seventies Serpico. Um, and then you got like a lot of underrated gems that I just, you know, I'm the contrarian that I like, I just think are equal to some of the more famous ones like dog day and 12 angry men, um, like Prince of the city running on empty the hill. So it's, it's just, it's, it's just an insane filmography, but I do think this is probably one of my favorite heist films for sure 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you encouraged me to watch the Anderson tapes, which I did a couple weeks before that. It's kind of a weird thing to have watched that movie before watching Dog Day Afternoon, I think. But it's, yeah. it, it was a little more accessible. It was on Criterion, so I did that. And I, and I definitely like this better. I just found it more compelling. I found the characters more interesting. I found it more tense. Uh, but one of the interesting things about this for me going into it was that I was kind of spurred to watch it. Like, like I said, it was already on my list cause I'm trying to, comp- uh, watch a bunch of gems I've never seen. But then I was doing the podcast last week on, uh, never rarely, sometimes always with Ben. And we were just talking about like, uh, how that movie never rarely, sometimes always was a really good New York movie. And, uh, Ben made the point like, Oh, well, I mean, I think when I think about good New York movies, I think about Sidney Lumet. Have you ever seen dog day afternoon? So I was put on the spot. I was embarrassed to say no, but he talked about how he thought dog day was like a really good New York movie. So I didn't know anything about it other than it was a bank heist movie going in. And so I, when he told me it was a good New York movie, I thought like it was going to be a story about this guy on the run. Like I thought like, Oh shit. Like he's going to be like running from cops all across New York city. And we're just going to like see him like just gallivanting around different parts of the city. And so Sydney Lumet's going to shoot the city in an interesting way. And even though it's obviously largely takes place indoors, I still want to ask you later on if about this movie as a New York movie, but it's just not that it's like a totally different movie from what like I had built up in my head going in. So it was kind of an interesting thing for me to like have that expectation upended, but then realize that like, in a way this was like, a very, very interesting precursor to network, which I just forgot, like was like that close in connection with each other, because obviously networks like such an iconic and great, uh, and movie for like just the foresight it had and how prescient it was about where media was headed. And this is like, it's, I found it funny that like the thing that stuck with me most about dog days, I felt like it was just like kind of starting to get at that just with like the way, uh, it Whatever it wants to say about celebrity, I just found very entertaining and just the way that people are reacting to the events of this movie within this movie as it is going on the whole time. And it just felt like very much of a piece with Network, and I was like, oh, this is kind of a different way of handling the same subject matter. And I just thought that was a really cool and interesting thing that he pulled off. And, yeah, a lot of that's obviously in the writing, and, you know, Patty Shaevsky should get a lot of credit for Network too. But, like, even the way he shoots, like, a scene with, like, the crowds – around the bank and just the way they scurry about when they hear a gunshot. And like, that was my favorite shot of the entire movie was like all these dopes, like trying to stand like stand and watch a gunfight. And then they get really scared when a gunshot happens. And I thought that was just like the most, like that said so much. And I was like, wow, I really appreciate what you're doing here, Sydney. Yeah, no. And like, wait, it's funny. Cause like the movie that you said, like you're in your head, like imagining it would be mm-hmm. is kind of, it is kind of, that the, the movie you had in your head is kind of the Anderson tapes where like that is more, you know, people kind of crisscrossing through New York and then ultimately ending up like at a heist. And like this movie is almost like the inverse of it. And like I think I told you earlier, like I, I kind of now in retrospect look at the Anderson tapes as like a trial run for this. But like as we were like describing like the movie, I was also thinking, oh, there is a lot of parallels to like 12 Angry Men, too, where you're you have a bunch of people trapped in, in like uh, in a situation where they can't leave and tensions are getting heated. It's, you know, in both situations, it's implied that it, and I think in 12 angry men, it's implied that it's a hot summer day. And here it's straight up a hot, like what it does about like what makes it a great New York movie. is like kind of like do the right thing where it captures yeah. New York in the summer and it's just this unbearable heat. And it's just like the tension of it. And I think one of the things that like why Sidney Lumet is like an all time great, you know, New York director is like his ability to like cast the movie 
where you're getting all these different characters and people kind of representing different subsets of the city, like, and there's an authenticity to it. And I think it's because, you know, his connections to the New York theater scene, like Sunil Lamette was like a top theater director and came out of television and stuff. And so he likes to, you know, like cast, like he knows how to cast a movie and he knows how to work with actors and bring out the best of them. And, and make it feel very authentic, like the people inside the bank. And, you know, a lot of them are like, you know, like notable character actors. Like you have Carol Kane there and you have like Penelope Allen, but like they feel like real people. <laughs> like, um, And I think that's what sort of like, you know, makes the movie feel special. Yeah, we're talking about Oscars and stuff. And like, I noticed as soon as uh, Carol Kane popped up, I even like recognized her in the background. I'm mean, like, I don't think I've ever seen much old Carol Kane stuff. Like, it's just not, in, or maybe just not a lot that jumps to mind initially. It's more like, uh, sadly. Oh, I, I see. I haven't seen Annie Hall in like six or seven years, and so like, I, I, I forgot that like she was in that. But I, um, but like, I, I still recognized her right away. And I was, and I was like, wait, she got nominated for an Oscar once too, right? And she, she literally got nominated for an Oscar that same year for Best Actress in a Leading Role. And then she's like a bit player in this movie. It's very weird. <laughs> That's crazy. Like, yeah, no, like, and and, and the thing is, another thing that like I thought you mentioned that. Um, like putting together like it as like a movie about the media and how um, the media would uh, like respond to this type of scenario. It's like, in, like to me, it's not far off. Like you could imagine like if, if this heist happened now, like today, the social media frenzy, it probably would create where like, you know, like, like, it, like it feels like the, it really does capture like, how people react to a situation and how very easily, you know, a charismatic figure can sort of manipulate people, even though like you probably shouldn't be rooting for Sonny, you know? Yeah. I don't want, I don't want anyone to, uh, I mean, I guess none of the hostages are actually killed in this movie. So mm-hmm. I, I would be okay with something like this happening now. I feel like it would be something, it would, it would be a great communal experience for all these people that are just like stuck, <laughs> <laughs> stuck inside during the, during the quarantine. So if we could have a version of this with like no death, cause there's already enough death going on. I feel like that would be really like actually kind of good for people right now and be a much needed distraction. I like how you, the lawyer is like, I'm pro heist. I'm pro heist <laughs> in a matter of quarantine. Hey, I represent insurance companies. So like, that's just going to generate more work for me anyway. You know, like that, that, that bank has insurance. Sure. Not that I do that kind of all exactly, but it's just it's just helping out my fellow lawyers at the end of the day. If anyone, you know, no one's really that much worse off. So and, and also like here's the thing, like the, to me, one of the MVPs of the film is Charles Sterling as the cop mm-hmm. because you know like he like he, he he's he's not even like a like he's not a bad like in it, like in most movies he, he'd be kind of like this dickish like officer and you're really rooting against them but whenever he's on screen like the movie does a really interesting balance where you're rooting for son but you also have a lot of sympathy for the cop well like, how often in- how often is the hostage negotiator character actually a dick because they have to play the cool guy that wants to ingratiate themselves to the criminal to, to the robber right yeah that's fair that's fair but like i would imagine like in, like you know this coming like you know post like you know, Bonnie and Clyde in terms of like the crime movies and stuff like, you know, it's very easy to make like the police, the enemy, you know, like, um, um, like, you know, if you're rooting for a criminal, you don't necessarily like the cop, you know? And in this case, like this dude is just a dude doing his job. Like he, he wasn't cut out for this. Um, this is like, like, this is a really 
shitty day for him. And then like, and I think there's like a moment where they like say like a fat joke to him, and he's like, "Come on, man!" <laughs> <laughs> you, you think you think I'm enjoying this hot New York day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And and and, and, it, and it's like I think that that's the thing that's kind of the key to the movie is like Sidney Lumet's like you know empathy for all the people, um, and I think that's probably maybe comes from him being as a New Yorker, where like you know this movie is notable for the trick, like you know the reason why they're robbing the bank is uh, uh, Sonny's trying to pay for a sex change for his uh, uh, um, partner mm-hmm. and. And, like, you know, the movie, you know, what's notable about it is, you know, 1970s, not a very woke time at all. But the movie itself, like, handles this the storyline with a lot of sensitivity. Like, they're not making the character, uh, the homosexual Leon. character. Yeah, Leon, who wants the sex change. They're, they could have easily made him, like, a homophobic caricature, and they, and they avoid it. Like, yeah, they're not impressive for that time. Yeah, like there's this scene where, um, like you know, jumping way ahead in the movie, there's a scene where you know Sonny is making is you know writing down his will and he's saying like you know my assets will go to my partner and you know you could see like in the person writing the will kind of like you know taken aback that like it, he's talking about a man but at the same time it's not played for laughs and I think. That's I think that's partly like if you have to think about like Sidney Lumet as this director who grew up in New York, who works in New York and works in the theater community and probably is probably more acquainted with like, you know, the LGBTQ community um, more than any other directors working at that time. You can sort of see like, okay, okay, he has like an empathy, he has like an understanding like these people are not, you know, like outside of his realm like he's dealing with all sorts of people at this time yeah you know? I, I, I like that you made that point because I, I i i totally agree with that i was but i, I wasn't gonna it wasn't something i had actually thought to make myself what i'll say about the leon storyline was it it almost works for me more for what it tells you about sunny than it does as a storyline in and of itself uh because it's a little kind of weird how like they there's this long scene that is very well acted between uh sunny and leon where they finally get the two of them on the phone and but Leon's like kind of saying how he's like gone through all this really hard time. He like committed suicide because Sonny was kind of abusive to her. Or sorry, she committed suicide because Sonny was kind of abusive to her and like professing a bunch of problems. And I, it, it it just left me a little confused as to exactly what the nature of their relationship was that like it was that bad and that hostile. But I guess I guess the idea being that like Sonny wanted wanted her to look like a girl because he was maybe kind of embarrassed and had some self-loathing going on and it just wasn't really all that explained so I was like huh I don't exactly understand like you kind of have this other like you say you want your wife or you, you say that you want them to call your wife to the scene or are you actually talking about Leon or are you talking about the estranged wife that he has kids with and I was a little just kind of confused what was going on with it but I thought it was a very interesting like re- reveal for the character like three-fourths of the way through the movie to just to go there because we've kind of come to learn and think about him as one person and it like totally recontextualizes like his motivations and just his de- persona and demeanor throughout and uh but it didn't feel like too shoehorned in or anything like that or didn't feel like uh like too too hard of a left turn it was just kind of interesting in how deft they were in like adding this whole entire other side to the character at that point in a movie that was uh, a very different type of movie up until that point and i just i just thought that was like very interesting and uh 
actually pretty well executed as like um, a shading of a character more so than like a, a, just a part of the plot, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and, and and like you mentioned, like the deft hand that is at play here, and like the whole movie kind of is you know you go from like really serious dramatic moments with a lot of tension to moments where he actually does like inject some levity and comedy. Like one like one of my favorite moments in the film. And it's a kind of a heartbreaking moment, too. It's like when uh, Sonny is talking to John Cazelle's character, and it's like, all right, let's pick a place. What's a place that you always wanted to go, like, out of the country, anywhere? What place? And I believe he says Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, it, and it's, it's funny because, you know, like, you know, kind of like a moron, but also, and also you pick the most boring place ever, but, like, the, hey, the, you, have you ever been to Wisconsin? Yeah, to, yeah, to be fair, it, it has competition. <laughs> I'm just saying, he didn't pick the. Like, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He didn't. He, um, he, he didn't pick the Caribbean or the Mediterranean. Yeah, but also the interesting, but what's kind of heartbroken about, like, sad about it is that you know this is a dude who probably hasn't gone out outside of his borough of New York City. Like, he just doesn't have like. Uh, um, you know, knowledge about like the outside world, you know, cause he hasn't really, you know, they're still young guys. Like I think they're in the twenties. And so like, they haven't really lived a life. And unfortunately, you know, he's kind of the heart of the movie. He is like the sensitive soul of the movie. And you can imagine he's not very bright, Sonny, he, but he's a loyal friend. Sonny, you know, comes up with this idea, you know, and he kind of goes along with it. And he's the one that probably pays the ultimate price at the end. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> he does. Well, I I want to I, I want to ask a little bit about uh, that the the, the actual uh, mechanics behind that ending later. But but, but but I guess before we jump to the end, I'll I'll ask you a little just a little bit more about uh, Sonny as a character and uh, Pacino's performance. And like I I get I get why you wouldn't rank it as high as uh, in the in the upper echelon of your Sydney Lumet movies because there's just a lot going there's just a lot to choose from but uh i do do you think it's it's very different from like most of the other pacino performances i've seen and you said before we started recording oh yeah we're going with subtle pacino and you like pacino as ham so is it also like in the is it also in the bottom half of your pacino performance rankings oh no like this is this is a great pacino performance like Mm -hmm. this is this is my thing with pacino i i like i like all sorts of pacino i like him subtle i like him quiet and I like him full on. Uh, she had a great ass. You know? <laughs> like, like I like I like like to me, he can never go too over the top. Like, you know, I'm having I'm having fun with that. Like even in Carlito's way where he plays a Puerto Rican, yet he has a southern accent that's left over from set of a woman. I'm still on board because um, he just he is a presence, you know. Um, and so in this movie, you know, this is like Pacino at his at his peak like this is him coming off with like like you know the two godfather movies and serpico and he's you know like very it's funny like the pacino voice like something happens in like the mid 80s where like you know he goes from this like quiet you know soft-spoken voice and and but you still have that like you know he erupts in yelling there is a pacino yell the it's probably one of the most famous Pacino yells with Attica, Attica. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very quiet, subtle performance. Like I believe he lost the Oscar to Jack Nicholson that year for one floor to cuckoo's nest. And so like, you know, that, that's a tough performance to beat as well. 
but you know, like this is this is a pretty you know this is an iconic performance and it's worthy of praise. And and the thing that Pacino does, like he has a really difficult task because you know, as you were mentioned before, it's very easy to make Sonny unlikable, and yet he makes us have a lot of sympathy for uh, uh, Sonny, even though Sonny's kind of a loser. Yeah, I mean, I I well. Yeah, it, it, you do feel bad. Like it is one of those things where it's like one minute you find yourself cheering for him, and the next you're like, "Should I be doing this?" Uh, but it's also interesting because, like, I mean, I found myself thinking about The Godfather. I was watching it and just the trilogy as a whole, and like just how much Michael changes over the course of The Godfather from just where he's at when you first meet him in the first movie. And yeah. obviously, I think part of what's going on in The Godfather is just he's becoming maybe a person that he always was and was just yeah. pretending to be someone else. But at the same time, I feel like he is changing because of his circumstances. And I think it's like a very subtle difference in what he has to do in dog day afternoon, where his circumstances are just causing him to show what he has been the entirety of the movie. You know what I mean? Like yeah, he's not changing like, as a person. He's just like having to like peel back all of it, All of his layers are getting peeled back over the course of one day. Whereas he's changing because of the circumstances in the Godfather. And I, I was like just very impressed that there's like a difference between those two things. Yeah, no. And like the thing too, is like Sonny is, he's someone who can't fake it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like you could see him like coming apart at every single moment. You see him coming time. apart in like the first 10 minutes of the movie where he thinks he has it all together. And then it's like the worst heist ever. And like, it's not ev- imminently clear at the beginning of the movie that they are not professionals. Like, I mean, it seems like for a second, I'm like, Oh, is this a story about a guy who robs banks? Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, this guy can't be a bank robber. Cause he's so awful at it. But at the same time, it was just like, wow. Like, this this fell apart really fast, man. Like you did not, you were not very smart here. Like like everyone's like, why did you light a damn fire in this thing? Like, what are you thinking, dude? <laughs> and the thing with Sonny too, you have to imagine that like probably wasn't like the best like you know still like you know student academically growing up or anything like that. But if you think about like the peer group he surrounds himself with, he probably gave himself the false confidence to pull this off because he's next to John Cazale's character. Like, and the guy, like, and, and, and the guy that bails in five minutes, like he's like, I'm going to surround myself with somewhere where with a crew where it's like very clear. I'm the alpha, even if you probably shouldn't be the alpha of a crew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, like he is the smartest one of probably of his block, but that's not saying much. And to be fair to him, I don't think he's a complete doofus either. I just think he's just, Desperate. But the ironic thing is, is like you're right that he might be the smartest, but at the same time, if you recall, there's a moment like not too far into it when things start to go south, where Sal asks him like, "Hey, like if we need to, are you down to kill some people?" Or, 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 he's, or he actually says, "You think Sal's going to be like, no?" He's like, "Are you willing to like actually kill some people for this?" Because I'm thinking like, "Oh, Sal like doesn't want to do this. He seems like kind of a harmless fool." And <laughs> Sonny doesn't really answer, and Sal's like, "Because I am." I'm like, "Oh shit, Sonny, you're a little, you're, you're a little crazy." And Sonny like probably didn't even contemplate this at all. <laughs> yeah, like no, that's the thing, and I think that's probably what makes them uh, uh, um, human is the fact that like at the end of the day, they don't kill anybody. Like, like, you know, like, like the, like what I find interesting about the movie is like the hostages towards the end of it, they take a liking to, to the guy. I was going to ask you, what did you think about this movie? Did it earn, did it earn the Stockholm syndrome that it pulled off? Did you buy that? Yeah. Because like, you know, I think it's pretty clear, like the hostages at a certain point realize, okay, they're not actually going to kill us. Like at first they're like afraid of them because, you know, they're being, you know, held hostage and then, you know, like, 
kind of the New York police system is bubbling it and putting their lives more in danger than than Sonny and uh, Sal are. And I kind of like the dynamic um, that they have where you kind of have these like moments of spontaneity uh, when you know you have like this like one Latina. Um, well, one, of, one, of the, one of the great one of the great parts one of the great moments of the movie is where I don't remember why but for some reason they have to bring one of the bank tellers outside uh, yeah. to help them do I don't know maybe consummate one of the deals that they've pulled off with the cop and yeah. I get maybe because they're having to bring out the, the guy with the asthma or whatever or, or something mm-hmm. like that and, and they're like look yeah. she's already outside anyway like why don't you just let her go and she's like I don't want to go I'm going back in with my girls and she seems <laughs> to enjoy the applause she gets from all the folks the outside. So it's like a combination yeah. of her, like one knowing that like these guys are probably ultimately kind of harmless. Like, and I don't actually think they're going to kill me Two, Like it just shows that like, it tells you something about the people in that, in that bank. It's like an efficient way of like kind of filling in the, the, the color for these characters with that, like without actually having to like give them all a bunch of dialogue. It tells you a lot about the kind of work family they probably have. And three, you're kind of seeing her get a little seduced by the celebrity of it all too. Yeah, no, and by the way, like, what you were saying about, like, filling in the color of the characters, you know, like, you, you, if you break down, like, the amount of dialogue they have, it's probably not much, and the thing that, like, Sidney Lumet, like, harps on, like, I, like, I read his book um, a while ago, and when he talks about the making of um, Dog Day Afternoon, like, one of the key part because he comes out of theater, and because he comes out of also, like, television, like, the, one of the key components of his, like, process is like he spends a lot of time on rehearsal. Like he spends months and months, like you know, on rehearsal, getting the cast together and try to make them forge some type of camaraderie and make sure that they got the lines down to a T. So like it either feels improvised or that they have the freedom to improvise when they finally get to the set. And and like you know, dog day afternoon, you can you can feel that. You can feel like. Um, and it's weird because I've heard like many, there's many directors who actually don't rehearse, um, because they don't like, uh, they feel like it, they, it, by the time they shoot it, like the energy is sucked out of it. And so that's why they don't rehearse. But in this movie, the energy, you feel like a lot of the energy, like the, you know, you feel like this is happening in real time and the, these people are real people and what's coming to mind is it, it, like what would come to mind, like in a real person in the situation and and the fact that they do have personalities it is a testament to the actors and also uh lamette's you know ability to get these performance out of people yeah definitely uh do you have an opinion on the end uh did did sonny go all out in selling sal out or was that just something that they were proposed to him and uh didn't actually happen or did he actually agree to do it off screen um, like how I like read the ending of the film. So like I, I, I view like I view it that like when they get to the air air airplane hangar, like you know at that moment they do like Sal and Sonny do think that they're they're about to pull this off, right? right. And and I think I and I don't think like Sal would actually deliberately. Uh, I mean Sonny would deliberately uh, betray Sal. But he might be quick to notice, like, oh shit, but they're about to pull the rug out of us uh, far sooner. And, and it's funny because, like, when that moment happens, it's not incongruous with the rest of the movie. But like, when Sal gets shot, it's like, oh shit, shit just got real <gasps> at like this moment. Like, it just like because you were, you know, balancing this, well, this tone going from tension to humor and and, and sadness. And you've at this point really liked the two guys. 
and then you're kind of rooting for them to pull it off, and then boom, it gets dark real quick. Because also, there hasn't been a violent moment in the single in, in, in a single shot of the film up until that f- moment. So that so when Sal gets shot, like it, it's brutal, like it hurts. Yeah, no, I I agree. Do you have any other Do you have any other thoughts? Any other parts of the movie you didn't done a touch on? Um, do, do, do. Oh, that's a great opening. That montage where he's like selling you on this hot summer day in New York. He, it's just him like cutting to shots uh, of the city in the summer. And, and um, he has a song playing and, and it, it's just, it's just, it's a real good editorial thing. And it's a great time. This movie's an ultimate time capsule. Like it, it it's, it's, you know, it shows us what New York was like in 1975. It feels like a very accurate depiction of that time. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the beginning because I was – well, I thought you already made a really good point earlier about just the, the temperature of it all and how that kind of makes it a New York movie because I'm someone who like – I'm someone who doesn't travel. I like going to New York, but like I go there in the winter, people – and I, I don't tend to travel that much in the summer even though I don't really like hot weather and I live in South Florida just because like yeah. places I like to go are like our big cities in the north that still get really freaking hot in the summer. Like I, I feel like people don't kind of underestimate like how miserable it can actually be to be in New York City in July. They just think it's like the northeast, but it's really not that much. Much better than Florida from a climate perspective. Oh no! Like I honestly like we're both Florida boys, but like like anytime because I go to like you know I lived in New York um, for two years and like and then like I go to um, uh, New York City in the summer uh, every year now. No, I, I like going there in the winter. I can't stand it in the summer. You can't walk one block without feeling like you have to take a shower. No, I agree with you. I 100 like when I go in the winter, I prefer it. Because, yeah. um, like, I think summer in New York is actually worse than Florida because, at least, you know, if you go into someone's house or go to a restaurant, it has AC. And you normally but, can just drive to get there and you don't actually have to be outside for that long. And, like, you're right. Unless you yeah, take like, Ubers and taxis everywhere in New York, like, it's miserable. Yeah, no, no. I remember, like, walking in New York and, like, I'm like, I was, I got invited to a, a mutual friend of ours, invited like me to like a party that they were having in Williamsburg. And like, I spent the whole day just like sweating and I just decided, you know what? I'm going back to like Coney Island <laughs> taking the sub. Cause like, or, I like, I, w- I went to go back to Coney Island to like take the sub to, you know, like go take a shower and clean up because I was sweating so much. And then when I got back, I was like, now nah, I'm not going back outside. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's a, it's so far. Everything's far away. And everything's, there's not a lot of space in New York. Everything's cramped together. And it's hot. It's yeah. Just- so I'm glad I'm glad you made that point because that's a great way in which it's a New York movie that I really hadn't even thought to talk that much about. But I, I also agree about the beginning. That's another way where it kind of just uh, puts you in the mood for what that city is like. But when you said opening, my head I just had forgotten about that. My head just went to the basically the first like minutes five through. 30 of the movie which i thought were like actually really tense like i know these guys aren't going to pull off the bank robbery like because even though i didn't really know what the movie was about i knew that it wasn't really going to be a successful bank robbery so even knowing that like i because a lot of times the, a, a bank robbery movie might kind of uh build towards the, the bank robbery sometimes it yeah. starts out with it sometimes it's the ending thing uh it just depends but i was like man like this uh like this is like really tense, even though I know it's not going to end well for these guys. Like I'm on the edge of my seat and I just thought he pulled that off like really well. Like, I mean, when you think about a lot of Sidney Lumet movies, I mean, like whether it be like a, whether it be a net, I mean, I guess actually before the devil knows you're dead is like, you're seeing, that's another thing where you're seeing the aftermath of it. But like, I mean, whether it be like running on empty or uh network or uh 12 angry men, like not really a lot of like 
action set pieces kind of in the same manner of like that bank heist and he just pulls it off really well and i found it really suspenseful and i realized we didn't actually talk that much about like just that scene in and of itself of them trying to rob the bank it, yeah. it, it, it was like tense but also like hilarious at the same time at parts when he's like, like so inept at it uh like when he like yells at the guy that bails on him for like coming back uh <laughs> And, and and then he has to yell at him again to get the keys. I just like I was like cracking up, but at the same time, like he's right back in there, and it's very tense again. And I just thought like they did a really good job of shooting that. And I wanted to shout shout out that part of it because there's a little bit of chunk of the movie we didn't dwell too much on. Oh yeah, and there's also the chunk where like the the, the cops are trying to break into the bank, and then mm-hmm. and they feel miserably that I think it's really tense. But actually, can I like uh, talk about like Sidney Lumet, like where he was at in his career at this time, like. Because with like with Sydney, he he's a very interesting director in the sense of again his directorial debut is Twelve Angry Men, mm-hmm. one of the greatest films ever made. Is his feature length directorial debut, and you know he's a guy who comes out of television. Like he was a veteran television director when he made that movie. But the weird thing is like from Twelve Angry Men to like I guess like Serpico, like he hadn't really like the '60s was a weird decade for him. Where like he, you know, he has this famous movie to his name, and he has very interesting films in the '60s, like The Pawnbroker, Failsafe, which is crazily relevant now. I'd be kind of curious to see what your opinion of it, hmm. given that like you just saw Doctor Strange Love, and this is like Doctor Strange Love played straight. And he has a movie I really love, The Hill, um, which is a great POW movie. Like I think has like one of the best wonders ever. Like I think it's a phenomenal movie, and. But like his sixties, there's not like like a famous classic film from that time period. Um, even though I think like there's like they're they're very interesting in their own ways, and 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 there's one that I think is one of his best films. But in the seventies, he's kind of relaunched because he has Serpico, he has Net, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, and Network, and they're all kind of coming out like around the same time. And so he's now like revital, and this is also the time of New Hollywood, where like you know he's a director who got his start in the '50s, but he is, you know, his contemporaries. We do lump them in with like the Scorseses, the Coppolas, the Spielbergs of this time period, because that's sort of when his hits are happening. And the weird thing about like his like career, like the weird thing about his like style is the fact that like you know we do think of him as a New York director. And that's kind of the main part of his aesthetic. Like, you don't necessarily... He's not a very showy director. There's not, like, you know, like, a lot of, like, you know, like, maybe, like, a lot of kineticism you would associate with, like, Scorsese, like, another New York director. Like, he he's a very restrained director. But, like, you know, like, in his book, like, he talks about, like, you know, he's he's not, like, showing off for show-off's sake. That's not his style. Mm-hmm. But, but he is a dude who really does you know, pay attention to the composition of this film. Like, you cannot say his films are not well-directed. Like, when I think of, like, an iconic Lumet shot, I think of, like, that scene in Network where Ned Beatty's giving his, like, speech about how the world works and it has, like, the lanterns. Like, he can he can create these compositions, but, like, he's very tight and subtle. Like, he, like it, it's a very... It's a very few directors can sort of pull off, like, what Sidney Lumet does. And also, like, the other crazy thing about his career is the fact that, like, you know, this is the same period he has, like, his New York crime movies, but he also has Murder on the Orient Express and The Wiz. Like, in this, like he's a guy who, like, jumps around. Like, I always, like, admire directors who 
are as prolific as him and have like very like eclectic and varied filmographies where they can sort of jump to different genres like if they want to you know what i mean yeah. like i feel like, like i feel yeah. like kubrick did that pretty well too at least from what i've seen right? yeah like there, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys that like i admire that do that like spielberg Soderbergh, yeah. um um and to a certain extent like Clint Eastwood, where they just you know and it, kind of the problem with being prolific is the fact that, like, you know, if you make a lot of movies, if you're making a movie per year like Sydney was doing, the one downside of that is you're going to have some flops. Like, I will say this, like, the 1990s is probably, like, the worst decade any, like, significant director of his ilk has ever had. <laughs> like, like, for a director as big as Sydney to have a decade where there's not like one single notable film. Like if you didn't know better, you would just think that like, if, if you just had to judge him on his nineties films, you probably wouldn't think that like he, he was a good director, but then like, you know, the come out of it in the two thousands, right. And 50 years after his first film, 12, 12 angry men, he probably has one of the best, like final films any director has, which is before the devil knows your dad. And it comes back to, you know, recurring themes of like, you know, like a heist. That's another heist film gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot it was a 50 year difference. I mean, I guess I, I guess I knew that cause I kind of knew when both those movies came out, but that's kind of wild too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, like Sydney's like, just like to me, like he's a director's director. Like, mm -hmm. like I don't think, I think if, if you, like, want to, like, study the craft of directing, and I think especially his book, one of the best books about movies ever written, where he gets into all the mechanics of making a movie and what goes in it and his own personal thoughts about the successes and failures of his career. Like, I think it's just, like, you know, he's not showy, but, like, you can't, like, take him for granted. You can't sleep on him. Like, there's, like, like there, there are just so many great... There's a lot of films of his that, like, I rank so highly that I think people should check out that are on par with Dog Day After. Yeah, that's why I'm glad you kind of that you just got to go on this rant because I mean it kind of put me in my place. Like I was glad I didn't like rant more about how unique the uh, the action scenes were in uh, in Dog Day because like I forgot that he did have these kind of older war movies that I definitely should check out. It seems like you would highly recommend them, and I hope our listeners do as well because like I, I definitely want to go check them out now too. And where do you stand on the verdict as a lawyer? I'm, 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 so many people I trust speak so highly of it that I think I need to give it another shot, but it honestly kind of bored me the first time I saw it. See, I'm probably not too far. Like I like the verdict, but like it's not one of my favorites. Like it, like it, I don't have the same love for it as everybody else, but I do, I do like, it. like, um, but I did like, I, I rewatched it. And again, I, I came back like appreciating the craft that was on display, uh, um, especially Newman's performance. Um, right. But yeah, but yeah, like, like that, it's not a favorite of mine, so don't feel bad. But like, you so know, is it the the, new, the verdict? Like, I feel like it should be a little more up my alley than uh, Twelve Angry Men. I mean, maybe not because like Twelve Angry Men is obviously like incredible, but like the the verdict is maybe a little more up my alley as far as the kind of law that I do. It's about a medical malpractice case, and like I don't do med mal, but like a lot of the people at my firm do, and it's just a civil case. And it, and I think you like procedurals, like yeah, you know, I guess. it has a spotlight vibe to it because you know it's it's another movie about the horrors of the Catholic Church in Boston. Uh, <laughs> But it, it is set in Boston, right? I, you know, I have to think. I think maybe I have to double check on that because it would mm. make sense if it is. But it, the 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 
the New York City-ness of uh, Sunil Lamette is following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Boston movie. It's a ball. I just looked it up. It's a Boston movie. Okay, so, that makes sense. Yeah, so I need to I, – I, I feel like I need to revisit it, but it, I don't know. I think I was just a little let down the, the first time I watched it and found it a little, a little slow compared to a lot of his other stuff. Um, now, like, oh, by the way, the perfect Sunil Lamette movie, the one that I think is like held – that like it's it's so much better than the verdict but like underappreciated like and it's also a long movie but like this one i think you would probably like because i think we're kind of on the same page of like what we like what we dislike uh, of him prince of the city yeah you told me about that one before that's like on my list of stuff to get to yeah that's like his departed oh like, really? that's, yeah that's like his like it's about like an undercover cop i mean no it's about a cop that has to rat out a corrupt cop you're getting me confused like, with serpico i'm getting confused now. <laughs> um, it's kind of the inverse it's kind of the inverse of uh, of serpico because like the whole time with serpico you like serpico you know that he's a good guy and then with like uh prince of the city it's kind of like the person is doing the right thing but you think he's a piece of shit <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, sort of, it's, it, it's a great like that movie like what's kind of notable about it is that like he and Brian De Palma switched. Like De Palma was supposed to do Prince of the City, and Lamette was supposed to do Scarface. Oh. And then like De Palma says, like uh, uh, Lamette stole Prince of the City from him or whatever. But I, I think, think it worked they, out okay for De Palma. I think. So. I think it worked out for both. I think they, those are two great movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think yeah. a lot more people. I think The Departed is just well more a lot more remembered, whereas Prince of the City is just like very very uh, under the radar. Yeah, it's under the radar, but I think like people who have seen it, he did get a he got a best screenplay nomination, which is kind of crazy. Like they, he he got a he also has a writing nomination in his name for a guy that like mostly just known as a director. Yeah, no, yeah, like that, and I think that's the thing. Like you know, um, it, you know, like if you know, like a lot of like auteurists or whatever, maybe like may sleep on Sydney because you know he has a prolific you know film career, and so. And also, like, you know, he's not the flashiest director. And so, like, you know, you can't, like, attribute, like, a style to him in the same way you would um, maybe, like, David Fincher, like, where it's, like, super obvious. But, like, but again, as we're talking about, like, I think, you know, if if you go through his filmography, I think you could see, like, oh, yeah, this is the same dude. Yeah, um, yeah agree, agreed. I'm looking forward to checking more of these out. Uh, Josh, before we sign off, aside from all these Sydney Lumet's entire filmography, which you just summarized for us, uh, <laughs> do, you have, do you have any other uh, streaming recommendations, things you've been watching in quarantine that you'd like to give a shout-out to for our listeners that they should check out before we sign off? Yeah, like, you know, I've been going through the different streaming services. So, like, I like to balance, like, like the Criterion Collection where I watch – this you know Japanese like crime thriller slash a little bit like a horror film like if, if depending on your definition called Cure from 1997. It's sort of like it's sort of like the Japanese version of Seven. Hmm. <laughs> um, it's very disturbing um, and it and it kind of feels like relevant in the time of like the plague where it's about there's there's these killings going on and, and they're being caused by people being like innocent people being hypnotized to murder people. So like, you can't, it's like this invisible monster you have to like capture, you know? So there's that one. I, I, you know, uh, on Hulu, I, I'm going to go through Bong's uh, filmography. Uh, cause you know, I had never seen the host and I oh. saw that one and that's oh, a pretty okay. terrific movie. Pretty great opening scene. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, um, the thing, like, you know, like Bong is just, you know, his, his filmography is excited for me. Cause like, 
right now I'm only missing um, Barking Dogs Never Bite and Mother. Yeah. And I'm just same, I'm, same for me. I need to watch those too. Yeah, and I feel like you know his filmography is like there's probably no bad movie. Right. <laughs> uh, and so I've been doing that, but I'm also like I kind of like going on like stars or cinemax and like watching like a dumb like studio comedy <laughs> mm. so like today i watched bachelor party um I've never seen that. Very, yeah it's it, you know the crazy thing is like imagine tom hanks but as like a slime ball <laughs> like like it's like just a, a dumb instead of instead of america's dad yeah 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 that's, that's, that's kind of the crazy thing um that was not very good I'm trying to think of like like a Cinemax stars pick that I that was you know blew me away. Some of them are just good, like Broken Arrow, the John Wu movie, sorry John Travolta. But I like I like I like watching like a dumb you know like studio film from like 20 years ago. <laughs> no, it's a it's a good call. Like I've been trying to kind of mix it up too, going back and forth with Criterion. Uh, week and a half ago, or uh, weekend before last in Criterion, I watched Orson Welles' The Stranger. Which I mean is uh, oh yeah I've been watching the noir noir films on Criterion and that's one that is not on Criterion but I really want to watch The Stranger. The yeah, Stranger is on Criterion. Oh, it is. I yeah, saw that... it was on Netflix as well. Oh really? So I watched it on Criterion. Like I- I'm still having trouble navigating the Criterion channel. Like I like how they curate collections and stuff, but it's sometimes it's hard to find like one movie that you know is on there. It can be a little bit weird. Uh, but The Stranger is really good. It's like it, somehow like they got a really good story written about a a, a Nazi hiding in America like that came out like literally like in 1946 like they got this thing uh, out there really fast and it's like a really really tight story and sometimes with these old movies like i i, I just have a little trouble getting into them it seems mm-hmm. like it seems like a lot of them just like drop you right in and expect you to know what's going on with all these characters that are talking fast and and a kind of a complicating story with a lot of factors and this is like a very very like lean story with all the fat cut off just about like a a detective trying to track down a a nazi hiding in uh, a small connecticut town who's escaped and uh it's a great performance as the nazi by orson welles i mean i i i need to watch more of his movies i've only seen citizen kane and uh, the other side of the wing because i did those two when the other side (laughs) of the wing came out so there's a lot in between that i'm missing but like if you like him in that noir vibe the touch of evil is the one yeah then i'll I'll probably i'll probably do that then but like i it's just that's where i am at with this filmography and like well yeah i mean it's a good performance in citizen kane i don't think the first thing you think about when like what makes citizen king great is his performance uh and that was great he like plays it from young to like like, yeah i mean there's a lot going on and like i mean i feel like there's more stuff that makes citizen kane what it is whereas like the stranger i think it really lives and dies on his performance and he's really good and as far as like a slightly more modern thing that i watched if that's what i'm throwing out there for old i i watched a fish called wanda for the first time last weekend and that was fun and i recommend people do it it's like it's just a obviously very goofy movie and uh written john cleese got a oscar nomination for screenplay for it and just a lot of fun performances with all the actors but also like um uh like i, I like that it seems like a lot of these actors are like a lot of these characters are like that maybe are really smart and i like watching movies about smart characters and then you can slowly find out that that's not the case and i kind of enjoyed that at the same time so yeah uh, the rare like comic performance to win an oscar with kevin mcclyde in that movie but you kind of mentioned something interesting with like the stranger uh, i haven't seen it but one thing you kind of mentioned that kind of brings me a little bit back to Sidney Lumet a little bit mm-hmm. is you're mentioning like like that one of the things he likes about the movie is it's it's very tight mm-hmm. like it's very tightly paced and I find that like with like with classic films like yeah like if when you're watching a bunch of classic films you kind of have to like 
you know, you're not used to the pacing. There's a lot of things that as cinema has progressed that like, you know, like the sort of like the sugar to make it a little bit more interesting. I, mean, I, I feel like I'm being a little little kid complaining about like movies being accessible and stuff and old movies yeah. and stuff like that. But it feels, it feels like every time I turn on like a movie from before 1955, like I have to it takes me 20 minutes to get my bearing straight. And yeah, you, no. you're usually dropped in and it's like a bunch of characters in a crowded room talking. And I, yeah. I know I'm kind of generalizing, but it's just like it's very disorienting a lot of the times. And I, I the stranger just kind of stood out because it wasn't that. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's one hundred percent fair, and like, and also like, there's little things that you don't like you take for granted, like you know, like with sound design, for instance, like in modern movies, there's more foley design, like little background noises or a little score that's kind of like playing, whereas you go through long stretches where there's just like no background noise, it's just dialogue, you know, and and that type of stuff that makes it a little bit jarring for a viewer. Um, and and like what I was getting at though, I realized like the classic films that like sort of like contemporary audiences can like watch uh, like 12 angry man is like one where if i put it in front of like a class of like high school like students i think it's like the rare one where they could actually get into and i think the reason why i think the key component is like if it's tight if it's very tight like if it's both like economic in the story and also in the filmmaking like i always find like like that's sort of like the key like part of it where like a lot of these movies as you're saying like it is just people in a room like talking and it's it, so you have like that 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 like filler space where it's like well what do i do with this you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah like but yeah no like i gotta watch the stranger like uh like you liking it really makes me want to watch it yeah, no, I I I think you'll dig it. It's it's good, and I'll be curious. And the, I, I almost brought it up earlier in the podcast because the idea of like the the cops sometimes being unlikable, and there's a cop in the stranger who is having to go into a small town, and you think like they might be resentful of him, like kind of trying to investigate someone in their small town, and it's the same idea where he like he's such an affable presence that like that's not the case and i it's a cool performance so i think i think you'd enjoy that part of it as well so uh yeah definitely ex- interested to hear what you have to say about that um but yeah uh, i think that's about it we've uh we've, we've i think we pretty well covered Sydney lumet and i and i knew you were the right guy to do that uh before before we sign off do you have anything else you want to plug letterbox twitter anything like that uh, nah, I'm All good. Right. <laughs> All right, yeah, St- stay a blank slate. Uh, as usual, though, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O I, on Twitter and Letterbox. And uh, podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast Gmail is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. So if you have any suggestions for old movies you want to check out, uh, if you want us to talk about while we're still having to suffer through this uh, time of no movie theaters, please do so and let us know what you think. Uh, thanks again to Josh for joining us. Coming up next week, uh, who knows? It's, it'll, it, we're gonna have to. I'm just gonna have to pull pull into this grab bag of old movies I want to revisit, revisit and see who see who's available to talk about what. So I promise we'll have something new to talk about next week, and it'll be probably be something totally different than this because I'm just jumping all around genres and time periods, and I'm really enjoying doing that. So thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.